Welcome to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church. For more information on Sherwood or Pastor Michael Catt, visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. And now, here's Pastor Michael Catt. This is the last message in this series. I've been very excited about uh, this series. It has reminded me of some things that I needed to be reminded of. It has uh, helped me uh, to remember that you know, it is important that we know the basics and that we understand the basics of how to study the Word of God. And so uh, I, I want to jump right into it tonight and, and talk about fi- some final thoughts on studying the Bible. And you have already been able to tell by your note sheet, there's a lot of ground to cover tonight. Now, I've given you a lot of it uh, because I can't expect you to write that fast because by the time you got home, you'd be sitting there going, what word is that? And why did I miss that? And I'm trying not to frustrate those of you that if you don't get all the blanks filled in, uh, you have to go for counseling this week. So I'm trying to, trying to help you as as well, but I want to look at some final thoughts on studying the word of God. And let's jump into it. Number one, you need to look for keywords and phrases. Look for keywords and phrases. Now this is a little deeper. We're going to go a little deeper than just the who, what, when, where, Uh, why, and uh, the wherefore. This is how once you kind of get that observation, interpretation, application down, that these are some things you do to go deeper. So you look for keywords. What are the keywords? It could be a keyword in a chapter. Like, for instance, in Luke's gospel, he says uh, three times in one chapter, you cannot be my disciple. You cannot be my disciple. You've got to look at a key word and say, well, what is it that keeps somebody from being his disciple? So you look for key words or phrases. It could be in the chapter. It could be in the whole book. Sometimes there are, are key words that float through an entire book, and, and you see those. Uh, I, I would encourage you to color code. Some of you, a few of you, have been through precept Bible studies, but... Uh, In precept, you learn how to color code and mark your Bible. For instance, every time you see the Holy Spirit, you draw a triangle. Uh, You just take a pen and draw a triangle over the Holy Spirit in your Bible because what that does is it it, it just immediately makes that pop out on the page to you. When you see Christ or Son of God, you draw a cross and, uh, and you color code by certain things. I color code my messages. Sometimes a choir must think, what in the world? He's just been playing with crayons all week. Uh, in his Bible, but uh, I color code my messages. And what that does is it helps me as I'm preaching along. Uh, what I know where I am because I've studied enough and I know that uh, blue means scripture and uh, yellow is a key point. Pink is an illustration and uh, I've got other colors that I use for other things. But when you start color coding, then as you personalize the Bible for you, as you're finding those key words and you color code those key words, then things begin to pop out at you uh, while you're studying it. Secondly, look for list. Look for list. The fruit of the Spirit is a list. The works of the flesh is a list. Qualifications for deacon is a list. A a genealogy is a list. But you look, is there a list of things? What what does God say that are the characteristics of? uh, Blessed in uh, the Beatitudes is a list. The blessed person does this. The blessed person does that. The happy person does this. The happy person uh, does that. So you look for lists. Also under list, you think about contrast and comparisons. Contrasts and comparisons, which, which simply means 
you begin to list like the proud versus the humble. Of course, obviously, Proverbs is a book of contrasts and comparisons. But, but just if you were doing a study on the proud versus the humble, or the righteous and the unrighteousness, or, or you do a, a comparison, Satan is like a roaring lion. He is a father of lies, and you begin to come up with a description of our enemy and what he's like. Number three, look for terms that turn the text or bring it to a conclusion or application. In other words, uh, there are words like therefore, wherefore, but God finally. By the way, the two key words oftentimes that you find in, in Scripture are but God. That's, that's a God intervention moment. It turns the text. It tells you that, that something was happening, but God said something else was going to happen. A therefore, you ask, what's it there for? A therefore is always referring back to what was previously said. Uh, in light of all that he has said, therefore, uh, when you come to Romans 12, therefore, I beseech you, brethren. What's he talking about? He's talking about what he has said previously. So you look for the finally words, the uh, uh, terms that turn it. Number four, you vary your study. You vary your study. Now, I'm going to give you several things under this because I think they're, they're important things. One is study key characters. Study key characters. If you want to do studies of characters in the Bible then I would encourage you to either buy F.B. Myers biographical studies or Chuck Swindoll's biographical studies. Both are excellent studies on key people in the Bible. Uh, there's also a, a series of books that are out that you can get called All the Women in the Bible, All the Men in the Bible. Uh, they're, they're all kind of books like All the Threes in the Bible, All the Sevens in the Bible. Uh, you know, you can do a concordance and do that study for yourself. But study characters. And in fact, one of the things you'll find when we get into the Route 66, uh, Route 66, Route's what Southerners say. Route's the exact uh, way you're supposed to say it. Route 66, because I used to live right by Route 66, so I know that. I just don't always remember it. Uh, one of the things you learned, if you learned the five key characters of the book of Genesis, you learned the book of Genesis. You, you got five key personalities in the book of Genesis. And so you can do a character study. In Exodus and Deuteronomy, the key character is Moses. You get to Joshua, guess who's the key character? Uh, you get to Judges, you can begin to study the Judges. You know, uh, I went back and re-looked at Gideon after going to Gideon Springs. And studying him, just think about Gideon. Here's a man who the angel of the Lord appears to and says, Hail, O mighty man of valor. And he's hiding. He's a chicken. You know, but God saw something in him that, that he didn't see in himself. And, and so you study key characters, Ruth and David, uh, obviously John the Baptist and Solomon and Peter and Paul. Uh, where were they tested? And when you study characters, you know, where were they tested? What was the defining moment in their life? Why did God use them? And one of the things you'll discover in studying key characters is this. God uses ordinary people. He just uses plain old B-flat people. He uses ordinary folks. He just loves to do that. Uh, Paul says that God's not chosen many wise or many noble according to this world, but God's chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. Uh, study key events. Study key events. Uh, just a few suggestions. You can study the Exodus, the flood, the captivity, 
uh, the miracles, the building of the temple. Uh, Study key events in the Bible. Why are those talked about in such detail? Why do we know so much about those events? Why did God choose to reveal so much about those events? Next, trace the journey of the Jews. Trace the journey of the Jews. Now, it starts in Genesis chapter 12. And some would say it goes all the way into Cana. But when you really trace the journey of the Jews, it goes through the kings and through the prophets because the kingdom is divided. There's the Babylonian captivity. You see the history of the Jews, and it's cyclical. They go from bondage to deliverance, from deliverance to wandering, from wandering to warfare and victory, from victory to defeat. That gets you to the book of Judges. From defeat to complacency, complacency to indulgence, indulgence to bondage. Bondage leads to prayer, which leads to deliverance, and they keep repeating this cycle. Let me tell you, the study of the book of Judges is a great study of the history of the Jews because it tells you that God's people tend to forget that God has done great things for them. It's a great reminder to us that we tend to forget. And that's the very thing that Moses said, don't do. (laughs) Don't get in the land and forget. And they forgot. So you study uh, the journey of the Jews. Trace the life of Christ. Trace the life of Christ. You use a Bible atlas and you see what happens. We talked about in a previous message about the majority of the ministry of Jesus happened around the Sea of Galilee. And so you you can see the paths through which he walked, the communities. And actually, when you're sitting on the Sea of Galilee, you actually realize that except for Tiberias, very little has changed in Israel in 2,000 years. Still the same little communities that Jesus would have seen when he was on those boats in that water and walking in that region 2,000 years ago. So you trace the life of Jesus. Trace key words. Trace key words. I may have told you about this, but a guy that I dearly loved that I met in seminary was named Frank Favaza. And Frank had over 50 Bibles in his library when I met him in 1976. He had a truth Bible, a love Bible, a grace Bible, a peace Bible, a kindness Bible, a faith Bible, a hope Bible. And what he would do is Frank would take his Bible and every time he wanted to trace a key word, he would buy a new Bible. And he would put a label on the outside of it. And he would start in Genesis and read all the way through Revelation. And any word or related word to that word, he would underline and he would study and he would mark. So somebody say, I'm having trouble with figuring out if God's word is truth. He said, come in my study. Pull his truth Bible down. Say, where do you want to start? You want to start in Genesis? We can go all the way through Revelation. And he marked up a Bible with one word. And then he'd get another Bible and trace another word. And he had over 50 when I met him. I don't know how many he's got now. He's, uh, but, I mean, it was incredible. And so when he would take us out, when we were in seminary and poor and starving, Frank would take about three or four of us out that were in seminary. And he'd say, I'm going to take you and buy you the best steak in Kansas City. Our wives didn't like that, but it was a way that we had about a two-and-a-half-hour lunch. He said, I'm going to buy you the best steak in Kansas City, and we're going to study the scriptures after we eat the steak. And we would sit in a booth at one of the best steak houses in Kansas City when none of us had enough money to even buy a glass of water and listen to Frank teach us out of one Bible that he decided to pull off the shelf for an hour and a half to two hours. So you trace key words, key words like grace, peace, heaven, what it means to be in Christ. By the way, either in Christ, by Christ, or for Christ appears almost two, over 200 times 
just in the New Testament. If you're having a problem with your self-esteem, I would encourage you to study who you are in Christ because it's a pretty incredible study. Uh, and then the last thing, enjoy the journey. I mean, just enjoy the journey. Bible study is not meant to be boring and static. It's meant to be enjoyable. There are historical markers on the trip. There are places where you can stop and feast on a passage, on a, on a word, on a verse. Just enjoy the journey. The second thing is focusing on the Old Testament. Romans 15 and verse 4. Romans 15 and verse 4 says, Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. So that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. There are two things that Paul says in Romans 15, verse 4. He says, you find spiritual power through the word. And in verse 5 and 6, he says, you find spiritual power through prayer. So he, he tells us that these things are written to encourage us and to help us persevere. Now, just think about the disciples. Think about them reading the first five books or one of the prophets. All their lives, up until the time they met Jesus, they had read the Old Testament in light of a coming Messiah. Now they read the Old Testament in light of the one that they have walked with, talked with, ministered with, seen perform the miracles. Think about how all of the scripture now became an encouragement to them. In perseverance, because remember, they were birthing a church, but they did not have the New Testament. All they had was the Old. But they began to look at the Old Testament in light of the person revealed to him in God's Son, Jesus Christ. So why should we study the Old Testament? Number one, because the Bible is incomplete without it. The Bible is incomplete without it. You don't have a Bible if, if you don't have the complete Bible, because the New Testament is the fulfillment of the Old. Christ finds meaning. The Old Testament prophecies find meaning by looking at the Old Testament. Secondly, the ministry of Christ would be a mystery without it. He would be a mystery without it. We would not understand all that we understand about the Old Testament if God hadn't given us a picture in a person. And that person being Jesus Christ who showed us and revealed to us God. He said, if you have seen me, you've seen what? The Father. Now, here's why it's important. In matters of controversy, Jesus always deferred to the Old Testament. In matters of controversy... He always deferred to the Old Testament. Let me give you two examples. Luke 10, 26. What is written in the law? This is a question he asked of the Pharisees. In Mark chapter 12 and verse 10, haven't you read the scriptures? And so he always referred back to the Old Testament. So he, he, he says, there's no mystery here. It's revealed in the word and I am the fulfillment. The mysteries have now been revealed in me. Number three, it is God's perspective on human history and evidence of his sovereignty. It is God's perspective on human his history and evidence of his sovereignty. I mean, when you read the Old Testament, one thing you learn about God, he's in charge and we're not. He raises up a kingdom, he puts one down. Uh, Cyrus the, the king who came to set the people free. He said, Cyrus, my anointed. Cyrus was not a believer, 
But God orchestrated events where Cyrus would be the one that would deliver God's people. That's in Isaiah 45. He would be the one that would deliver God's people. And he says of Cyrus, he will do this and get no reward for it. But he's going to be an instrument in my hand. He is my anointed to be used by me. The, the Old Testament clearly states that God's hand is in history and that he is sovereign. He's not removed himself from history. Number four, it sets the stage for the New Testament. It sets the stage for the New Testament. I mean, it's just the, it's the, it's the appetizer that gets you ready for the entree. It sets the stage for the New Testament. Number five, there are key doctrines in the Old Testament. You understand about the nature of God. Uh, by the way, people will say, well, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament are different. No, they're not. They're both holy. And they both deal strongly with sin. Same God. <laughs> same God in the Old, same God in the New. One God, but he reveals himself in numerous ways. But the nature of God and the nature of salvation and the nature of evil are all revealed in the first three chapters of Genesis. So if you write off Genesis 1 through 11, which liberal scholars did for years, in fact, I went to a seminary that had written off Genesis 1 through 11. If you wipe it off, if you wipe out Genesis 1 through 11, you not only wipe out creation, you also wipe out that man is a sinner, you wipe out that man needs a savior, and you wipe out that only God can provide salvation because there was a animal slain, blood sacrifice required to cover the nakedness of Adam and Eve. You wipe out your salvation through Christ if you wipe out the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Don't say it's a fable because if you do, then your salvation is a joke. It's not a fable and it's not a joke. It's all revealed right there. Uh, key doctrines, number six, is fulfilling. It's fulfilling I mean, all of us have been through hard times when the Psalms become our favorite book. And we just dig into the Psalms because of trials and adversity and problems. The testimonies of the people in the Old Testament inspire us to want to be holy and want to be Christ-like. Uh, the evidences of disobedience and how God deals seriously with disobedience. The prophecies that warn us that if we do the right thing, we will be blessed. If we don't do the right thing, we will be cursed. What applies in the Old Testament is so significant in helping us understand how God wants to work in our lives. And then number seven, this is a key one. In it, we learn to appreciate and pray for the nation of Israel. God still has a plan for Israel. Now, there's a new covenant with the church, which is different than the old covenant with Israel. But God is not through with Israel. When he comes back, and when he reigns on this earth, Christ will sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem. If you ever meet anybody that is anti-Semitic, listen, you are meeting a person who hates the line from which your Savior came. That's dangerous. That is dangerous. Now, most Jews in Israel today are not religious Jews. But God still has a plan. And if you read the book of Revelation, 
There's going to be a specific number that are going to be saved in the end times. And so don't think that God doesn't have a plan for the Jews because he does. And we know that in some of our lifetimes and some of your lifetimes, especially because in 1948, a people that were not a people became a people overnight and they got a land and we got the whole world trying to kick them out of their land. I don't think they're going to let it happen. They've already been run out once. They're not going to be run out again. And if America doesn't stand with them, God says he will bless the people that bless Israel. If America does not stand with Israel, and you'd know to stand with Israel if you read your Old Testament. If America does not stand with Israel, America will get the curse of God on it. Because God will not turn his head to those who treat Israel with disdain. So, let's focus on the New Testament. Now, what's incredible about the New Testament, there are approximately a hundred Old Testament references just in the Gospels. So when you think about the four Gospels, there are approximately a hundred Old Testament references in the Gospel. There are approximately a hundred Old Testament references just in the book of Hebrews. And there are 300 illusions or quotes from the Old Testament, 300 in the book of Revelation. So when you talk about old and new coming together, when you see that a hundred times in the Gospels, a hundred times in Hebrews, and 300 times in the book of Revelation, God has not laid aside the Old Testament and say, you're a New Testament Christian, you don't have to worry about what anything uh, says in the Old Testament. The Old Testament still has great value for us, but we read it in light of the New Testament now. And the fulfillment of prophecies. So you see a number of thoughts there uh, for you in your notes about why we need to uh, study the New Testament. Let me just, and I'm going to go through this quickly. Number one, in the New Testament, sin is clearly defined. It is clearly defined. I mean, there's no way you can read the New Testament and not know that you're a sinner. For all is sin that comes short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God hates sin. Sin is clearly defined. John says if a man says he has no sin, he deceives himself. So sin is clearly defined. Secondly, Christ is the fulfillment of all prophecies regarding Messiah. Christ is the fulfillment of... Of all prophecies regarding Messiah. Now we may look at this at some point. But uh, there's an illustration that's in Josh McDowell's book. I won't get this exact. Because I haven't looked at it in a long time. But the chances of one person fulfilling all the prophecies in the Old Testament regarding Messiah. The chances of one person fulfilling that. Would be equivalent to filling the state of Texas knee deep in silver dollars. And putting an X on one silver dollar and you walking around in the state of Texas and reaching down and pulling out the one silver dollar that had an X on it. Now that's incredible. And it's also undeniable. So, uh, for instance, let's just look at Isaiah. Let me just give this for you. The first part of Isaiah regards judgment verses uh, chapters 1 through 39. And then the second part regards comfort. First of all, prophecies against Judah, and then against other nations, then against the world, God's word to the world, chapters 24 through 27. 
and then woes and blessings in chapters 28 through 35. So that's the first part of Isaiah. Isaiah speaks much in the second part of the Christ who will come, the Messiah who will come. And so Isaiah 36 through 39, he talks about Isaiah and King Hezekiah. Isaiah and King Hezekiah. The prophecies concerning Israel's deliverance are in chapters 40 through 48. Israel's deliverer in chapters 49 through 52. And the prophecies of deliverance and judgment in chapters 58 through 66. When you see the fulfillment of prophecies, and and the prophets many times point to, that's why the, the people should have known, those around Herod should have known that Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, and they should have already known that when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, they should have figured it out. John Chrysostom, who's the bishop of Constantinople in 347, said, read all the prophetic books without seeing Christ in them, and you will find nothing so insipid and flat. See Christ there, and what you read becomes fragrant. Now, in your note, I think there are probably almost a dozen prophecies in the book of Isaiah. So if you're talking to somebody and says, well, I don't believe Jesus is the only way. I don't believe he's the Messiah. You can take these prophecies right here and walk through these passages, and every one of these New Testament references are a fulfillment to something that Isaiah wrote hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ was born. He could not have known unless Christ had revealed it to him. So, number three, Christ is the only way to heaven is clearly stated. Jesus did not say, I am the way until Mohammed shows up. He did not say, I am the way until Joseph Smith shows up. He did not say, I am the way until Buddha shows up. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life, emphatic, definite article in the Greek. So Christ is revealed as the only way to heaven. Number four, we have no hope apart from the grace of God. When you study the New Testament, you realize there's no hope apart from the grace of God. We're dead in trespasses and sin. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There's no hope apart from grace. I cannot work my way to heaven. I cannot earn my salvation. I cannot be good good enough and do enough good deeds to get to heaven. And that is clearly stated in the scriptures. Number five, uh, number six, the miracles and teachings of Christ have no power apart from the person of Christ. The miracles were never given for miracle's sake. In fact, when you read the gospel of John... One of the reasons for the miracles were signs of fulfillment of prophecies regarding Messiah. So there would be no doubt that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. And so the miracles are there to verify that he was the Messiah. Number seven, the Holy Spirit is active and in us. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came on people. At certain times, but did not stay there. In the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is in us. He dwells in us. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The Holy Spirit came in them at Pentecost. And so the Holy Spirit is in us and he's active and he will guide us 
Jesus said, into all truth. He said, it's good that I go away. Because if I don't go away, the Spirit's not coming. So the Spirit came, and the Holy Spirit communicates God's truth in two ways here. First of all, by revelation in Scripture. God reveals himself in Scripture, the Holy Spirit inspiring those who wrote the Scriptures. And then secondly, by illumination. By illumination. That's where the reader begins to see, boy, God's got something to say to me here. God's got something he wants to teach me here. The Word of God being God-breathed, active, powerful, profitable. God illumines us. He shows us. The light bulb comes on. We say, ah, that's what that means. That's where that's pointing to. Now I understand that. Now I see that. The Holy Spirit does that. By the way, I believe that the Holy Spirit doesn't teach you any new truth until you've acted on the truth he's already taught you. That's why sometimes the Bible becomes static to us because he's already told us something he wants us to do and we've not obeyed that thing he told us he wants us to do. And so he's not going to waste any more revelation on you until you've acted on the illumination that you've already gotten. Just a thought. So the Holy Spirit enlightens four kinds of people. If you want to know how the Holy Spirit uses the word and enlightens people, these are the four kinds of people that he enlightens. First of all, saved people. Saved people, John chapter 3 and verse 3. Secondly, humble people, Matthew 11, verses 25 and 26. Nobody arrogant is going to be taught by the Holy Spirit. Saved people, humble people, obedient people, John seven seventeen and John fourteen twenty one. Obedient people and witnessing people, Mark chapter 4, verses 21 through 24. Witnessing people. The Holy Spirit is called holy two times in the Old Testament. Psalm 51, Isaiah 63. He's called holy 90 times in the New Testament. So the Holy Spirit is active and he's working in us. Then the world, number eight, is headed toward final judgment. The world is headed toward final judgment. You, you can't read Time or Newsweek or watch CNN or Fox or read the paper and, and not realize that this world is moving toward a conclusion. Uh, things are falling apart. There are wars and rumors of war always have been, but we've never lived in an age where so many have or could potentially have nuclear weapons to destroy the earth. So this world's headed toward a conclusion, toward a final chapter. You pick up the paper tomorrow and there will be an obituary in the paper of numerous people. Some of them didn't plan to die, but they did. So this world is headed for a conclusion either in death or in the second coming. But we're, we're headed toward a finish line. Number nine, there will be a new heaven and new earth. That sounds good to me. New heaven and a new earth. Vance Havner used to walk all the time, and he says, sometimes I'd be in a church, and I'd walk by these really nice neighborhoods. And Vance Havner lived in this little apartment in Greensboro and grew up in a little bitty house about 800, probably about 800 square feet, wouldn't you think? Maybe, maybe 800 square feet uh, in Hickory, North Carolina. And it's fallen apart now. And Havner said, I'd walk by these houses, these huge houses and mansions with these landscape yards. And he said, I'd say, Lauren, I don't take that one. 
when you're handing out houses in the new heaven and the new earth. I'd like to live there for a while. <laughs> We're in a new heaven and a new earth. Number 10, we, have, we find enlightenment and power for holy living. We find enlightenment and power for holy living. I want to ask you to turn to Ephesians chapter 1. And I've got four other things I want to give you here under enlightenment and power. We find enlightenment and power for holy living in the New Testament. It tells us how to live the victorious Christian life. It tells us that we don't have to walk in defeat. It tells us that we can walk in power. It tells us that we can overcome the enemy. It tells us that we can overcome our flesh. It tells us that we can overcome our past. Everything about the New Testament epistles tell us that in Christ, we can be enlightened as to what God had for us from the beginning, what God wanted to make us. You see, our inheritance in Christ is not just what we got in Christ. Our inheritance is Christ is what he got in us. He got what he wanted. He wanted us. And we are his inheritance, and he is our inheritance. That's pretty incredible. Because trust me, I wouldn't want me for an inheritance. But he does. So that ought to make me think differently about myself. So Ephesians 1 verse 17. This is Paul's prayer. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ... The Father of glory may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. So Paul is praying that we would understand that any inability to grasp the truth is not intellectual. It is spiritual, that we have not dug deep enough and longed enough to understand these things. So here are four things that Paul prays for in this prayer. All right, number one, he prays that we might know God. That's verse 17, the last part of verse 17. Because Paul talked about in Romans that they were... Ignorant, and their ignorance led to idolatry and immorality and indecency. That's Romans 1, 2, and 3. He says, so I I want you to know God. Because when you know God, you're going to be less likely to fall into immorality and, and idolatry, finding other things to worship. That's what he prays in verse 17. He prays in verse 18 that we might know God's calling God has a call on your life. He has a call on my life. He has a purpose for us. He has a purpose and a plan for you. He knows the number of your days. And he wants you to know his calling on your life. It's not just to exist. It's to live. And it's not just to live. It is to live an abundant life in Christ. Thirdly, he he prays that we might know God's riches. God's riches. The wealth of what God has for us and what we have in him. And then finally, he prays that we might know God's power. That we might know God, that we might know God's calling, that we might know God's riches, and that we might know God's power. Now, wouldn't it be great if at the end of your life, 
you could testify to those that you know. Not only do I know God, but I know what his calling was on my life. I fulfilled his purpose for my life. I made some mistakes, took some detours along the way, but I was here and I did what God called me to do. Not only did I fulfill God's calling, I enjoyed the riches of the fullness of Christ Jesus in my life. I had some bumps in the road. There's some times when I lived like I was in spiritual poverty. But looking over my life, I can see the wealth of what I had in Jesus Christ. And not only that, but in the moments when I needed it, and when the moments when I was desperate, in the moments when I didn't have what I thought I needed, God's power was available to me. And I knew what it was like to walk in the power of God. You know how you get there? (laughs) Study this book. Study this book. And let the Holy Spirit, the author of this book, teach you the things that he wants to teach you. Thanks for listening to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church and Pastor Michael Catt. For more information about Sherwood, you can visit our website at sherwoodbaptist.net. If you live or visit in the Albany area, we invite you to worship with us here at Sherwood. Thanks again for listening, and have a great day.